Good morning, and welcome to the April edition of Black Book Talk. As we hope you all know, April is Poetry Month, and in honor of this, we are delighted to introduce you to, or maybe just, you know, bring back this friend, but E. Ethelbert Miller is our guest today, and we are just delighted to have him here. Uh, Ethelbert has a bio. He's done a lot. So I'm not going to read his whole bio because we're only a 30-minute show, but I do want to tell you just a few things. He's a writer, poet, a literary activist. He's the author of two memoirs and several books of poetry, including the collected poems of E. Ethelbert Miller, a comprehensive collection that represents over 40 years of his work. But we've invited him here today because he is, he was a finalist in the 2023 Grammy nominations for Best Spoken Word Poetry Album. This is the first time that the Grammys had this category and he was up against some serious folks. So I want you, I want him to talk about the whole process. He is the associate editor of the American Book Review. Recently, he received the Howard Zinn Lifetime Achievement Award given by the Peace and Justice Studies Association. He's received a congressional award from Congressman Jamie Raskin in recognition of his literary activism. And as the conversation goes on, we'll let him tell you more. But well, you know, I'm glad you did mention the, the Jamie Raskin because um, you want not know Jamie Raskin's father was one of my mentors, Mark Raskin. Uh, he was a founder of with Dick Barnett of the Institute for Policy Studies. Uh, many people associate me with Howard University, but I was board chair for about 14 years of the Institute for Policy Study, which is a progressive think tank. And so when you look at, you know, how much you know, um, corporations are paying um, their friends or the fact mm -hmm. that um, the battle trying to bring Pinochet to justice in Chile, all these things I have a lot to do with the Institute for Policy Studies. And, and you know, Raskin was a, Mark Raskin was a real strong influence on, on, my, on my life. And uh, when Jamie decided to run for uh, state physician, uh, me and a couple of my friends, we organized one of his first fundraisers. So he always talks about how the poets came to his defense. <laughs> Poetry so, is but, a political tool. Right. But, but the, the Raskin family is a very close family to me. Great. Okay. And then more of these gems will come out, I'm sure, as we go along. I'm Emma Ford, and I so love your poetry. I started wondering as I was reading, did you know at college that you were going to be a poet? Well, you know, I left the South Bronx in New York. You know, I was one of the first to go off to college in terms of my family. You know, my, my family, my father was actually born in Panama. And my mother's family is from the West Indies and uh, working class. You know, my mother worked in the garment industry. So I was the first to go off to college. Okay. Um, we, we, I was a family of three, you know, in terms of my brother and my sister. And our parents said, okay, whatever you want to do, we will support your one wish. Okay. So, you know, my, my brother went into the monastery. <laughs> That's what he wanted to do. My sister became a nurse. And then I wanted to go off to college because I wanted to go find a wife at Howard University. <laughs> and, and so what happened? And then yeah, I left I left the South Bronx. I was interested in politics. I think my mother and father thought I would become a lawyer or whatever. And around my like sophomore year, you know, I decided I wanted to be a writer. And I can still hear the discussion back when I went home, you know, to New York. We didn't send you down there for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if, if, you want, if you want to write, you can come back and write in the living room and say with some <laughs> and, and and I tell you what happens, and, and this is why I wrote a memoir, you know, Fathering Words, to talk about what happens within African American families, especially when 
a young person decides that he or she wants to become like a writer or an artist or a dancer, you know, many times there isn't any model for that. Or someone will say, oh, you want to be like your crazy uncle or your aunt who has no money, you know. So you have to really struggle, you know. And if, for example, you find a household that is 100% behind your desire to be an artist, you know, then you are blessed. That was not the case in terms of my family. But I did know that when I made a decision at Howard, and I, of course, I was around people like Sterling Brown and others, so I had a model. I also realized that um, if I want to become a writer, I want to be involved in every aspect of writing. You know, not just writing poetry, but you know, uh, promoting writing. You know, you know, organizing stuff. You know, uh, editing. I want to be involved in the whole process of writing. Uh, and so that's where I made the decision in terms of, you know, when I talk to young people who want to be writers, make sure that your portfolio is very diverse, that you can do, you know, you can do screenwriting, you can do whatever, because you want to have that as a portfolio if you want to make a living as a writer. And, and you know, historically, very few writers have make a living from their writing. You, know, you probably have to go back to Langston Hughes. You know, if somebody else is at, that you see writing is at some sort of like institution, like my Andrew was at Wake Forest with a lifetime position. You know, uh, it's very difficult to make a living from your work. And I think my mother and father, even though they didn't know about the literary scene, uh, they realized that this was something that, you know, their youngest would be foolish to follow that path. <laughs> you know? But I, I did have a chance to to become successful as a writer. And my mother and father were very happy about that. And yet I would have to say you've been very successful. But in 1972, when you graduated from Howard, you you didn't have a portfolio. I mean, you, I, all the opportunities, you know, all the, the diversity that you're mentioning, a lot of people would love to be a screenwriter and have that in their portfolio. But how do you do that? Okay. So, you, to put, you know, to put food on the table to get you through until you could live off of your writing royalties. OK, I'll tell you a joke, which is, I, I'm glad we're doing the show so now I can document things because since I'm no longer at Howard University. You might recall, OK, I graduated in 1972. Okay. Um, I became the director of the African American Resource Center in 1974. So you can see a very short time it came out, right? And, how um, and that's because right? my friend, uh, Rakeep Issa, who was head of the African American Resource Center, he was a devout Muslim. He got into, he got into an argument with a student and he realized that, brother, I can't stay here that long. You want this job. <laughs> and what happened, because the African American Studies Department was created in 68, uh, I little, actually, I started in 69, but it was created in 68 because of student protests. There was never any guidelines in terms of job descriptions. So there was never any description saying, okay, if you want to be the director of the African American Resource Center, do you have to have a master's? What kind of degree, a library degree? Whatever. There was nothing there. And so Dr. Adams, you know, uh, since Rakeem Issa was the director, he said, I'm recommending Ethelbert for this job. What happens, like, okay, how do I support that I should get this job? So I remember saying casually, I said, well, does publications count? And I said, hey, sure, publications count. Okay, keep in mind, I'm only 22, 23 years old. I had more publications than anybody in the entire faculty of the African Studies Department at 23. <laughs> Okay, so when you talk about what's not in my what's not in my resume, yeah, I don't keep my resume. But when I needed a job, I said, okay, yeah, I've done these reviews. I got poems. I got things in books, you know. And nobody in that department was publishing. Bless their little hearts. <laughs> Full disclosure: uh, many years ago, I worked at Howard University, uh, and I 
but go over to the Institute for the Arts and the Humanities. And I remember Ethelbert, as I said to you from that time, and I will say Ethelbert was charming. He had this just lovable personality. But now I'm thinking, you know, Ethelbert had a lot of hustle because the <laughs> folks who came to, I mean, I remember Hakimat Hubudi, you know, formerly Donna Lee was there like for a summer. I mean, all kinds of, of writers and other, you know, artists, just creative people flocked to the Institute passed through the Institute. So you were not just coming by flirting with the secretary, but you were actually coming by. <laughs> well, 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 let me tell you about it. Well, you told me about a key thing. I said, I was flirting with the secretary, but that's off the record. Oh, yeah, I know. I remember the poem. <laughs> but, 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 but what happened, as I said earlier, you know, Mona Reese would come to Howard's, you know, was this find an African-American woman to be my wife. And what happened... He was it, working hard on it, folks. I'm no, sorry. What happened, what happened, I was walking across campus and, and I met Michelle Calhoun. And that changed my life. What happened, Michelle Calhoun was from Chicago. Okay. okay. And Michelle Calhoun, because she was from Chicago, one day she told me, oh, you should, you should meet this guy, which was Donnell Lee. She knew Donnell Lee because she's from Chicago. And what happens when I met Michelle Calhoun, you know, she was one of the most beautiful women on the campus. You know, everybody knew when she stepped on the campus. And then I, from her, I found out, and this changed my my whole background. I left the South Bronx, listened to you know, Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and stuff. <laughs> when I hooked up with Michelle, she was from, you know, she was from Chicago. She was the cousin of Smokey Robinson. Her father was Eddie Calhoun, who played with Earl Gardner. So, you know, all of a sudden, yeah. I'm introduced to this whole Black musical tradition, okay? But she introduced me to Don Lee, you know? And and, and that's where, as a young person, and I always say this, Don Lee was Hakeem Madhubuti today, was very, very generous and and and, and kind and, and supportive and spent time, you know, uh, reviewing my work when I just had a few poems and stuff. And and you you have to have people like the Hakeem Adabudis, the Sterling Brown, people who take an interest in the younger artists, the younger writers. Yes. Your poems remind me of Thoughts on a Walk or uh, Wanderings While Looking Out a Window. Is that kind of what happens to get you started with your poetry? Well, that's nice that you mentioned that, the wandering, because it sounds like the title of um, Langston Yu's second uh, memoir, you know, I wonder, I wonder, you know, you know, the big, after the big C. And what happens is that I think that a writer has to explore his or her surroundings. You know, travel is very, very important. And being able to observe, being able to, to see and listen and hear, all those things are things I, I try to do. And I think my my early work uh, was very short. I was writing haiku, you know, back then. And, you know, those are things means that if you're writing that type of work, you're focusing on the detail. You're focusing on nature. You're focusing on your surroundings, you know. And I remember when I started out writing, because it was the late 1960s, many people thought that my work was, quote, soft, you know, because I wasn't talking about the revolution. You know, I was writing love poems and things of that sort. And so what happens, it was a thing where um, my early work, you know, it was a little different at that time. And one writer that was very encouraging to me, along with Haki, was a writer from East St. Louis, uh, Eugene Redmond, who was always saying that, oh, yeah, you know, keep writing those love poems, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, when you're young, you, you want to have that encouragement. I'll just mention, you know, the people that were encouraging to me, um, you know, Lance Jeffers, um, Jane Cortez. I remember these are people I, my first readings were with them. Uh, Ismail Reed, publishing some of my early work. Um, so I, I was very blessed. And then my mentor on Howard's campus was actually the director of the Institute for Arts Humanities. That was Stephen Henderson. Yes. Um, hopefully, and I'll know by the end of this month, 
it was like the last few days of, of, of March. But um, one that I've been working on with three other editors is compiling his um, his essays. And so this is a, right now it's on the desk of the um, uh, editors at University of Mississippi Press. So maybe they'll be able to. They, they say they like the idea. They they, they like the they like Henderson's work. They feel it's in keeping with what they're about as a press because they've been publishing a lot of books about African American literature. And so, you know, in a small way, we talked about the Institute, you know, 50 years created. And this is what I do as a literary activist is that I make sure that people will remember um, the Stephen Hendersons because it's very, very important in terms of not falling through the cracks of, of history. If we learn one thing yeah. about, you know, the last um, several decades is that it's so important, you know, to document what we're doing. Thank God for people like Alex Haley, who got us interested in family history. Yes. And thank God for the African-American Museum with Lonnie Bunch creation, you know, because those things now become like a beacon for families and not just individuals to, to say, OK, I want to go to Washington. And I want to see this museum or I have such and such in the basement or the attic that I feel is important now. Why? Because I read about it or somebody was mentioning about slavery here in whatever state I live in. And so many people now, I mean, I, I know that the Museum of African-American History in D.C. is just flooded with offers from people that, you know, there's something that might be of important. And a lot of it may never see the light of day, but there's some wonderful things out there. And the fact that people would share them because they want it to be a part of history. But I want to come a little bit closer. I want to talk about this Grammy nomination. This is the first year that the Grammys had the best spoken word poetry category. Give us a little background on how this came about, what your experience was like, how does one even come to their attention? Just what what, what that experience was well, like. Well, you can begin with the person who won the award. <laughs> you know, Ivy won the award for, for best spoken, uh, spoken word. I mean, he was the one that was lobbying for this category to be created. And so he should get all the credit. At one time, you said spoken word. You're up against Obama or Michelle Obama reading, reading her, reciting her her, her her memoir or something like that. Spoken word, okay. And you know, over the last you know few years, um, and when we talk about poetry, we're really talking about spoken word. We're talking about people who are incarcerated, you know, reciting their poems. Um, you talk about all the various uh, cafes and 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 places around the country in which young people are finding their voice. You know, getting up, you know, and doing slams and open mics and things of that sort. And so when you have the person like Ivy, you know, creating the category and 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 dealing with the fact that you're trying to convince the, the recording industry that this is an important yeah. genre, it's not easy. And I think what happens is that um, I'm glad he won. Uh, he might have been angry if he didn't win <laughs> because, you know, he came <laughs> up with a category. And then I, I, I look at it in terms of um, when it happened to me is that it made people more aware of my work. Michael Jamal Warner, who was uh, also up for an award, yeah. was interviewed and they asked a question like, what do you think of all the other people who you're competing against? And he went down the list and he got to me, he said, I don't know, Brother Miller, man, but Brother Miller, man, Brother Miller, something else. Brother. You know, you know, he gave me he gave me such a praise that my publisher said, can we use that as a blurb? <laughs> you know, Because he was so, you know, he was discovering. And what happens is that, uh, and this is the Grammy, I'm in my 70s. If if I was 23, 24, the Grammy would really mean something, you know, I mean, in, mm -hmm. terms, in terms of that. But it does mean something in terms of my neighbors, you know, my neighbors like, you didn't tell me you wrote poetry. Because I, I was on the news, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, like, all of a sudden, and, and then what you realize that, and this gets a lot to do with how we live our lives. We live our lives, and then there's the other lives that we look at. 
So, you know, it's like, oh, man, you out there with Beyonce. Well, I ain't no Beyonce. <laughs> I might have been close to Viola Davis for a few seats. But, you know, <laughs> but, but what I'm saying, we look at that and we never think that anybody we know is part of that. Yes. You know, like I, I go to basketball games, but do I have the good seats like Spike Lee and Drake? No, I don't have the good those good seats. You know what I'm saying? I'm at the same game, but they look to you the different place. They interact with LeBron James and you know, they slap five and so and what happened for many people, even my own children, being not only for the great meant something to them. Like my whole daughter's law firm was like, That's your daddy? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, before my 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 daughter was like, you remember that scene in Imitation Life where it said, there, there's my daughter? No. <laughs> 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 you know, that little scene where it was we have no black children here. <laughs> you know, so my daughter's like, oh, they, no, they my dad writes poetry? No, my dad doesn't write. <laughs> Anyway, you see where I'm going well, those with those are very young. Go to the <laughs> library, go to the Canopy, Canopy website, and look up Imitation of Life. You probably need to see it in <laughs> right, right, right. the movie <laughs> to appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> it is a thing, you know. Well, on, on a serious note, it's so important. I, I know, I think there might have been 65 people uh, who competed the, the, the nomination. They knew about it. Uh, and five people were saying, How does one become nominated? Did you nominate yourself? No, I didn't nominate myself. No, I'm not. In fact, fact, what happens, and this is what happens, is that there is you're dealing with the recording industry. There is a lot of people vote, so you have to really begin to 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 get your vote out. You can be nominated, okay, but then you're going to have to get people to vote for you, okay. Ivy probably over the years has more contacts in the music industry than I do. Okay, but the people who produced my, you know, uh, my 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 album, Kabir um, Hall, they've won Grammys. See, so what happens? In fact, they won a Grammy this past year in for like Latin music. So what happens is you got to look at who these producers are. Okay. okay, and what happens is that you know I probably would not have been even considered if it hadn't been the fact that many many years ago, uh, a person by the name of Doug Brinkley wrote the introduction to one of my books. You know, and Doug Brintley, you might see him on TV. He's he's a presidential story on CNN. And what happens is that he's an expert in the civil rights movement. We met many, many years ago when he was running, he was in New Orleans, you know, running a magic bus, taking high school kids and teachers to key civil rights places, Memphis and Little Rock and places like that. So we've developed a friendship a long time ago. And so what happens is that when Kabir, who's won these nominees, you know, sees this new category, he says, well, let me compete finds if I can compete for that for that category. And so he asked Doug Brinkley for a reference. That's how I get the reference. We have not mentioned the name of the album. And oh, it's Black Men are here. Black Men are precious. Yeah. And and we're gonna t- just pause for the moment okay. so you can hear this absolutely beautiful poem, which is, I mean, I don't care. Got my vote. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to pause for a moment and play that. Black men are precious. Black men, black friends having strokes. Black men younger than me. Good men with bad hearts. Men who did not follow their fathers in the factories or the post office. Black men who went off to college and pulled themselves up by degrees. Men who did not sink into despair, but lifted their families into new homes. Black men who survived the bullets, streets, 
and police. Black men who saw the horizon in the stars. They marched as if Garvey held out his hand, not to Ethiopia, but to our own hearts. Black hearts, now failing for unknown reasons. Why? Why do we die so young? Why are we not like our grandfathers sitting on the porch, rocking away the years? Why are we not the black men returning from the wars and lifting our girlfriends up into wives again? Why do we date this early death? After all the exercise and pills, after the changing diet, why is there such a cruel hunger that appears and takes our years? Black men, my friends resting in their open coffins, waiting for someone to sing, precious Lord, and take their hand. Black hands closing with so much love still left to give. that poem i love that poem for so many reasons it's a i love that it's about black men and we need to recognize that but of course health disparities are affecting us all black sure. women the right. mortality rate you know infant mortality how can this be but i'm so glad you wrote that poem yeah and you know that poem is very important i you know i wrote it back around maybe 2019 2020 so it's not a recent poem but what happened is a poem that when I wrote it, it was because I was, you know, losing some of my friends for various ailments and things of that sort. So it was that. And then, we, you know, we always have the police violence. So that's a part of it. But I think what makes the poem very important is the fact that if you're African-American, you know, out of the church, you know about Precious Lord. Okay. You know, you hear Precious Lord, I mean, all the time. Many people don't realize how that song comes to Thomas Dorsey. You know, Thomas Dorsey lost his wife. Okay, he was like performing. I think he might have been performing in maybe I've been in St. Louis and goes to Chicago. Anyway, he finds out that his wife has died giving birth. Okay, yeah. and then what happened a few days later? His the baby dies, and so what happened? He buried his child and his wife together in the same coffin. Okay. Now, people say that many people felt that Thomas Dorsey, after going through that, would never compose anything again. But then he felt Precious Lord came to him, that that, 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 that was like a divine gift, you know. And so that was a thing where I, I felt this reference to Precious Lord in the poem and the title, you know, Black Men are Precious, has to be built on that tradition because you see exactly what, what Black men have suffered and lost. To, to create that song, okay? And I think it's very, very important in terms of that reference. Well, I heard you say that this week you're going to find out about whether or not you're starting a new project. My question is, what next? Well, I've got I've, I've got a number of things. I've, I've been collaborating with, with a number of artists. I have a, a art exhibit opening up um, on June, in June with uh, Ethiopian artist Kapetik Taklib. Um, it's called Blue and Gray, this era of exile. That's a very important ex exhibition. I'm glad to be working with her. I've known her for a number of years. But then I think the major transformation in my life 
has to be my my friendship with with Miho Kikinis. Miho is a um, Japanese poet and, and translator, and we have a book coming out. We've been writing what we call tunis poems. You know, we're writing poems together almost every single day. Uh, and so what happens is I find that the work that we're doing, her impact on me has been like we I joke about it. It's like you've had the impact on me, like Yoko Ono and John Lennon, you know, because Miho reads, I mean, she reads like so many books a, a year. And that's in Japanese, let alone what's in English. Uh, and so what happens is that being around like Kapetic and Miho collaborating, it gets you out of your comfort level. Okay, you're dealing with people who are doing maybe art or see things completely different. Or in this case with Miho, you know, we're dealing with translation, something that that that, you know, she's Japanese. She's not Japanese American. So, you know, so when I told her about jazz, she's like, she did a research. Okay. So now she she said, Yes, I, I walked in and I heard it was Bud Powell and not Duke Ellington. You know what I mean? You know what happens. And what happens, you realize that you have to raise your game. You know, to 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 collaborate and 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 to be open to new information, and that's how you grow as an artist. And you know, coming back to you know being at Howard University, I was able to grow because I was around you know the Sterling Browns and the John Killings and the Hockey Mata Booty. And then I further grew when I left Howard University and became involved with the Institute for Policy Studies because now I'm going from Langston Hughes to Pablo Neruda, you know, the Ariel Dorfman, and I'm learning about Ruben Darío from Nicaragua. And so what happened? I'm expanding in terms of my growth as a writer and an artist. And at the same time, I'm committed in terms of, you know, being a literary activist, preservation, documentation, you know, making sure that the, what I experience is not lost in terms of my generation, but can be passed on to others. Ethelbert, thank you so much for joining us. Listening to you is like, like a masterclass in, in literary activism, in poetry as a tool for change but also just the beauty and the delight of it. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for the invitation. A lot of fun. <laughs> thank you. This is Library Lady Emeritus, Patricia Wells, saying <laughs> farewell and good reading to you. Emma Jackson Ford Book Woman saying, I'll see you next time. <laughs>